Hello and welcome to another episode of the Funds Download. I'm Phil Graham, Global Head of the Investment Funds team at Harneys. I'm very excited about this one because it's in an area that, I, that I'm incredibly passionate about and, and, and incredibly excited about, and that is the crypto space. Joining me today is Lewis Chong, who I describe to, to anyone that I speak to as the kind of the OG at Harneys in this space. Um, truly the pioneer that, that sort of took us forward in, in the very early days. And Mark Piano, who at the other end of the spectrum has, has sort of joined Harneys relatively recently and in the slightly surreal COVID environment that he's, that he's joined us, but actually has so much experience from his, from his time elsewhere that, that, that is providing already sort of increasing value into a lot of our analysis. Uh, gentlemen, welcome. Thanks very Thank much. much. Now, Lewis, you know, as I say, I credit you with having this incredible foresight to jump Harneys into this space so early on. But I'm kind of interested, when, when did you first become aware of, of sort of blockchain and cryptocurrencies and, and all of that kind of good stuff? What, was it outside work? And, and, and if so, what sort of piqued your interest in this area? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to say that I read the Satoshi White Paper in 2010 and, and jumped on it straight away. Unfortunately, that's not the case. If I had, I'd, I'd probably be instructing our um, local BVI lawyers down there to, to buy me an island so I could found my own crypto utopia. <laughs> um, so that's not the case, unfortunately, for me. It was really actually during the course of work and, and the first time it popped up, I think I got a call from out of the blue when I was living and working in the BVI from a guy who, who just called me up saying, I found your name on the internet. I'd like to set up a, a Bitcoin fund. And, and, you know, that involved kind of a, a frantic Google search while on the phone to, to, you know, find out what Bitcoin was. And ultimately, I don't think the, the guy went ahead with us in it because I didn't, I didn't really understand what they were trying to do. I was like, so what are you going to be doing? Are you going to be trading Bitcoin? How, how do you trade this? How are you going to make money? He's like, oh, we're just going to buy Bitcoin and hold it, which uh, at the time I thought was a ludicrous strategy because, uh, because of the value of Bitcoin. So, so that's really the, the first time I, I came across digital assets in my career, but it really didn't take off for me in, until a few years later. Mark, I'm not sure if you had a similar experience, but that's, uh, that's how I was first introduced to it. Uh, so I've got a fairly random uh, way I got into this. So around... 2009, I became in passing aware of Satoshi's paper. Okay, well, sure, whatever. Let's see what, where that goes. We then fast forward to around 2016 when I moved to Guernsey to work there for a time. And Northern Trust had just created a, a DLT solution, which was very exciting and very interesting and got a lot of people interested in this space. I've always been a computer geek who happens to be a lawyer. So when I learned more about the space in a lot more depth, I uh, became very interested in smart contracts in particular, as well as the different properties you could program a token for, and thus its different uses. And that's when my interest really started to intensify. And there were some very interesting legal issues around it, and not, not just to mention the regulatory side, which I really wanted to apply the, uh, the legal training I'd had to. And that led to a whole bunch of presentations, conference in Amsterdam for the International Bar Association on the insolvency side, which I ended up facilitating a couple of panels on and just really found that the, the thinking of people in this space, the potential of the technology and the direction it could take things in, not just on the legal side, but more generally, as well as the technical aspects were, were, were fascinating to me as a kind of coalescence of different factors that really have potential. 
Lewis, he's just completely blown both of us out of the water there. Um, it's really interesting to sort of hear the difference of approach. And, and Lewis, you know, I, I vividly remember you getting that initial call when, when we were both in the BVI. And I would have always seen myself as relatively tech savvy. I, I, I'm a bit of a computer nerd as well. And, and, and when you came in and started talking about it to my, to my office, you know, I remember scratching my head. And then when we both started sort of reading up about mining, I was like, I, I just don't get this. Um, so <laughs> no wonder we no wonder we didn't pick up that first instruction. But in terms in terms of sort of then that that legal framework, you know, clearly we, we both had that interest. When did you start? When did you start really getting involved in in sort of applying exactly as Mark says, applying what we know about the law to this to this space? Yeah, well, it's an interesting one. I mean, I guess it would have been 2016. Started starting getting inquiries from people with very good pedigree, you know, decent stints at, at investment banks or good VC investing pedigree, or you know, or even the the, the technical kind of computer science um, backgrounds. And and these people were looking at, at forming funds as well. I guess the thing to remember here is that um, you know we, we see all sorts of esoteric assets. Um, as as funds lawyers, you know some of the funkier ones I've done are art funds and, and wine funds and and even a, a collectible car fund. So you know the nature of the asset itself is is you know almost secondary for me compared to you know the quality of the manager. And certainly there was a, a sharp increase in, in the quality of people coming to to ask us about crypto funds in 2016. And I, I don't think it's particularly um, difficult to to put a fund focused on digital asset investing, you know, into a, a standard fund model, be it a, a VC style closed ended fund or, or an open ended fund. Um, the devil is in the detail where, where people want to do things a little bit, a little bit differently. But, you know, at the outset, it was, it was people saying, look, we're, we're investing in digital assets and, and this is the structure we want. And I think both came and BVI were very well placed to, to help with, with that side of things. Um, I'll take a little break here because because that's where I first started seeing things. This is this is before the the ICO boom, which I think we're going to talk about a bit later. Yeah, and what about what about you, Mark? You you, you had that desire very early on to sort of see how this interacted, and, and and certainly if we start getting into smart contracts and the coding of that, I think both Lewis and I are going to have nothing to say. But when, when did you start applying that legal expertise to this space? I think it started. I arrived in Guernsey in mid to late 2016, shortly after the DAO hack or the Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And just for context, that was a, a very interesting project where a lot of people uh, subscribed uh, virtual assets or cryptocurrencies, or whatever nomenclature you want to use, into an organization that was meant to uh, deal with it in an automated way. And it's, it was subject to a fairly significant security breach which led to a complete change in the Ethereum protocol, which it ran on and led to the, uh, the creation of the Ethereum platform, which is now in, in common use and what we conventionally understand to be Ethereum. But I found that fascinating in terms of the legal issues it, it threw up in terms of liability, the assets themselves, who's responsible, how all that works. And then that in tandem with the development of uh, Northern Trust DLT uh, operation and offering and the potential increase in not just ICOs, but use of the technology generally, smart contracts, the status and value of the tokens and, and the properties associated with them and the way in which they can facilitate transactions with that trustless element, either on a peer-to-peer -peer basis or through brokers, uh, it, it kind of got my mind racing in terms of what that means from a legal and regulatory approach. In some respects, there's nothing new under the sun. It's simply a different way of affecting transactions between parties. 
but there's mechanical and technical elements around it, such as with smart contracts, which I really wanted to understand to see whether the existing law anticipated it or could accommodate it, or what, if any, changes were needed from a legal and regulatory perspective. But also on the fund side, uh, looking at how some of these tokens and projects evolved during their initial life cycle, especially at the beginning of the ICO boom, we were seeing a lot of assets which, if you held them passively, potentially could become uh, redundant or even destroyed as the protocol changes occurred or as the project changes occurred. And one example was an ICO I subscribed to where after we had the tokens, they then split them into utility and security tokens and you had to convert your tokens to one or the other. And that got me thinking, if an investor comes in or you have an investment fund holding these assets, do they understand the underlying uh, fundamentals and are they sufficiently up to speed with the development of the project they're investing in to take perhaps a bit more active action than you would do with traditional assets. So a whole bunch of different issues, which in and of themselves are very interesting, but also taken together led to a very interesting landscape to explore. I, th I think that's fascinating. If, if you had that foresight way back in 2016, you know, that, 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 that is quite incredible because everything you're raising, you know, remains as, as, as quite large sort of issues out there, albeit clearly everything develops and, and this, this, this space moves, moves, moves very quickly every day. Um, but I, but I guess, I guess one question people might rightly ask, I mean, obviously you, you were there in Guernsey, Mark, uh, Lewis, you were advising on BVI and, and Cayman structures, you know, what, why were, why were these clients sort of reaching out to, to us? What, why, why were clients looking to go offshore to deal with this space? What was your take on that, Lewis? Yeah, I mean, in, in the funds context, I think, you know, it was, it was just the tried and, and, and tested model, right? So, you know, these these folks who perhaps were, were new to, to fundraising and fund management were approaching their you know, US advisors on, on the best way to structure a fund to invest in digital assets. And, and the traditional model is uh, certainly in, in North America where, where the bulk of my clients are is to, to have a domestic vehicle um, for your US tax paying investors and then an offshore vehicle for your uh, non-US and US tax exempt. So, so it was really just following that traditional path. Um, but when we started seeing um, all those inquiries about ICOs, there, there was the other driver, which is that people who were issuing digital assets or, or tokens were nervous about the US regulatory regime. And they did, did not want to fall afoul of, of any US regulators inadvertently. Uh, and, and so a lot of the time it was easier for them to try and set up the, the vehicle with uh, as, as little US nexus as possible. So obviously Cayman and BVI worked quite well from that perspective. Uh, so, you know, that, that was uh, one of the main drivers, I think, behind Cayman and BVI, apart from being, you know, tax neutral, reasonably light regulatory touch. That was the, the other reason for, for kind of the, the intense amount of interest we, we saw during the, the ICO boom. I think from my perspective, uh... I just need to contextualize this. I wasn't doing a huge amount on, on the fund side when all this was starting to take off. So I'm looking at this from a more holistic view as to why the offshore jurisdictions were preferred generally. And from my observation, offshore jurisdictions have a lot of things going for them. They, they have a reputation for innovation when you look at different structures and vehicles and uh, creating industries which position themselves very well in the global marketplace, as well as competing with other offshore jurisdictions. But also smaller jurisdictions often have more flexibility to read the landscape, 
adapt to change and have an incentive to develop opportunities in areas where there's potential revenue streams which align with their international positioning. And we've seen this over the years. A lot of offshore jurisdictions have moved very quickly to offer something uh, competitive, but also unique for their jurisdiction, which fits in with what they've already got on offer and leverages the strengths that they have. And, and another reason I think is that, especially in financial services, you've already got a fully self-contained ecosystem of service providers. And as long as everybody's on board with understanding client requirements, the underlying assets, and are able to provide services for that, I think it makes offshore jurisdictions and all the existing appeals they have as international financial centers far more attractive compared to some onshore jurisdictions for either sandboxing or, or bringing uh, virtual assets into existing structures or business models, or just uh, an easier place to go to, to get things done and to, to reach out to, to, to potentially lawmakers or regulators or, or industry to work together to find a solution that works for the particular client. So I think it's got all of these offshore jurisdictions have a lot in their favor compared to, uh, shall we say, larger or, 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 or more interlinked regulatory regimes. And that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I think what we found very interesting when we decided to sort of jump in and, and, and sort of jumped in feet first into doing this, and we looked around at our competitors, it was immediately apparent that actually most of them didn't really want to touch it at all. Uh, and actually, when, when I say most, it was it was almost all when we started. Um, and, 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 you know, it, 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 it's absolutely right that they are self-contained ecosystems, but you do need everyone to, to get that understanding and, and, and to play ball with, with, with making it work. And so, I mean, Lewis, when, when, when we were doing that and we were largely sort of pioneering it, certainly on the offshore side, and, and you were leading some of the, the sort of biggest launches we were doing, what sort of the initial challenges did you find people face? Because as you say, a number of people were coming to you because they were just following a traditional path. They had US investors, they had non-US investors. Okay, we need an offshore. Okay, we need an onshore. Um, you know, that, that sort of traditional, that traditional approach. But fundamentally, what, that, that trying to fit this space into that traditional wrapper, were, were there some real issues that came to, came to light because of that? Yeah, I mean, I think there were definitely issues and, and you know, uh, I'll get to the main one that, that that I encountered in a moment, but I think, I think you're right in terms of the, the, the people who were able to service this need were, were the more nimble, um, smaller providers who, you know, had people who were interested in, in the space and, and, and were able to adapt to client needs. Um, we're fortunate, um, as Mark kind of highlighted that we, we have pretty flexible, um, regimes, um, that, that, that can handle just about just about anything that, that's thrown their way, um, subject subject to, to to reason, obviously. But um, so so the main main thing that that um, caused us issues to think about was when managers started asking about the ability to accept uh, in kind contributions from from investors. So you know a Bitcoin investment, and the typical approach obviously is to to have the fund administrator. Um, help with onboarding clients from a KYC perspective and, and you know, processing subscriptions. And, and there was some real hesitation from some fund administrators on, on in-kind subscriptions because they, they, you know, had concerns about source of, source of wealth and, and, you know, essentially tying the subscriber to the crypto that was coming in. And um, it's still an issue we face today. I mean, it, it's still easier for us to recommend to, 
managers that they don't accept in-kind subscriptions from, from third-party investors on the basis that the, the legwork you have to do to get comfortable from a you know, BVI or Cayman AML perspective is you know, it, it's quite a bit of work and, and it's easier just to get fiat in. Uh, I'm sure we can go into this in, in more detail on, on another podcast, but that was certainly one of, one of the bigger ones. Um, the other one was uh, you know, we, we had people wanting to do tokenized funds and that dealt with a, a whole lot of different issues. So you know, the, the, the company's laws and partnership laws and came in a BVI regarding, you know, maintaining a register um, and having, having a, a physical location for the register and, and figuring out how, how that works. If you have decentralized evidence of title, th- those were issues we had to, to think about and, and work through as well. I, I've got a, a view on this that bearing in mind, I didn't do a huge amount on the, on the, on the fund side, but from general observation, I think the main challenges were, and this partly builds on the point you, you, you said in response to my answer to, to the previous question, Phil, you have some service providers who either didn't understand or didn't want to touch the this space, and that's completely understandable because the the rapid rise, the volatility, the the risks involved may not necessarily fit in with the business direction or the risk appetite of a particular service provider. And I think there's an element of, of appetite for taking on this sort of work, as well as the resourcing and developing of understanding and adjustments to business models, which wouldn't necessarily fit every service provider. So it was very much a call for each business as to how they wanted to proceed and whether they wanted to accommodate people in this space. But I think from general observation, some of the issues for hedge funds, the main thing I think was uh, net asset valuation. You're, you're trying to value holdings on a 24 seven market subject to huge swings in volatility. And you're trying to maintain the traditional fund valuation structure and paying of management fees based on an asset class that could fall by 40% in the space of minutes in some cases. And it becomes very difficult to develop policies and processes around that. And as you say, the tokenization of funds and whether the law was able to accommodate that, the location of the registry, the probative or evidential value of that, if it's not accommodated in the law. And also, as you say, the mechanics of accepting or making redemptions in in, uh, virtual assets was also a difficult thing because you'd have to look at wallets, custodians, and there were fairly few of those at the time. It was was such an avant-garde space with a lot of different things to consider that it doesn't necessarily always tie neatly into the traditional model. And so those who are willing to explore that and take the risks are the ones who um, in their mind were willing to, to, to explore and embrace this space and move first, regardless of the potential difficulties in doing so. And I think another aspect for the service providers was trying to call where this was going to go. Was this going to be a flash in the pan? And then they spent a lot of time and money and resources gearing up to services work and it disappears or did they take a longer term view that this really is something and a space that we want to be in? I, th- I, I can vividly remember those, com- those very conversations in Harneys um, between, between a bunch of us with sort of Lewis and, 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 and myself and others who had sort of began looking at this and others who had been nowhere near it so far, just saying, is this really a thing? You know, the, 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 there's clearly a lot of talk about it and, and it's becoming louder. We just about won the argument to do it, but, but, but it certainly was a, was a close run thing. Oh, so um, I, thought, I think the other thing just to jump in there is one of the yeah. biggest issues which still persists to this day is, is getting things banked. So yeah. having banks provide services to anything relating to virtual assets. And it, it really is a, a very crucial part of the exercise, whether it's a fund, whether it's a, a fundraising or whether it's a service provider. Different banks have different approaches to this, and that needs to be a, a crucial factor at the, at the outset of any discussion in this space, regardless of jurisdiction. 
I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I have to say, I, I think I had three calls this morning, all of which were on that very point. So uh, no, it, it, it is still a very live topic. Um, you, you've both made uh, references to 2017 and, and, and to ICOs. Um, I, can, I can absolutely confidently, notwithstanding everything that's going on in 2020, say that 2017 was the craziest year of my life um, for a whole variety of reasons. Um, but fundamentally, I have never known ICO inquiries. I've never known any type of inquiries come in the way they were coming in and doing what they were doing. I mean, Lewis, you, you, you were receiving them as much as, as much as anyone. Can you sort of take us back to what that part was like? You know, it, it wasn't the same as you know, very intelligent people coming to us with, with sort of Satoshi white paper um, degrees and, and, and saying, this is what I want to hold Bitcoin because it's going to go bananas. It was people doing all sorts of things. I mean, can you remember too much of it or is it all still a bit of a blur? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it is all a bit of a blur. And, and I do remember fielding a number of calls and then you know trying to talk through what i saw as the the relevant legal issues and and, and things i had to address leading to them perhaps thinking that that harney's wasn't the right firm to service them there were a lot of people who just wanted to get something done as soon as possible um to take advantage of the <laughs> of the mania and and those weren't the kind of people that we were wanting to work with you know we, we were looking for people who who you know, had sustainable models and, and, you know, weren't necessarily just looking to cash in on, on the craze. I mean, yeah, there were, there were all sorts, you know, there, there, there were the folks who were like, you know, we've, we've, we've figured out a way to de decentralized land registry uh, for, for property transfers. All we need is, is government buying. I mean, <laughs> you know, th those were the kind of ones where, where, okay, it's going to be difficult for you to, to get this off the ground. Um, so I, I don't know about you, Phil, but, but it, was, it was probably at least 95% that, that weren't viable from our perspective. And, you know, the main thing I used to weed things out is, well, you know, where are you looking to offer these digital assets? Because, you know, just like the US has a regime to protect ordinary members of the public from, from getting into investments that, that maybe are a little too sophisticated or, or too risky, every other developed jurisdiction in the world has had a, a similar regime. So if you're putting uh, something up on a website saying we're issuing these tokens, please contact us to, to subscribe, going through appropriate steps to, to get legal advice from the jurisdictions where you really think those investors are going to be coming from and spending the money on that. And that was kind of the, the main way that I was able to, to pass the, the folks who were you know, serious about their offering and, and the folks who were, you know, really trying to jump on a, an opportunity because of the, um, the mania surrounding tokens at the time. I say I came at this from a slightly different approach uh, because I wasn't directly working in an advisory capacity at the time. I was looking at this as a general legal perspective. And this was actually the time I decided to start learning how to code smart contracts. Because if uh, I was going to invest in any of these ICOs, I wanted to see how the crowdfunding contract actually worked mechanically and whether that matched up with what was proposed in the white paper. And I'd echo what Lewis said. You saw a wide range of projects, some of which were, were valued more on hope and optimism rather than any sustainable and practical business model. But certainly in that time with the hype, uh, people were throwing money at just about anything in the hope of uh, returns measured in the hundreds of percents. So that I think that gives a flavor of what the sentiment was like at the time. It got to the point where you could throw half a Bitcoin at about 30 different projects and divide it down. And at least five or six of those would make enough of a return to, to counteract the others. And it wasn't necessarily based on real analysis and due diligence, more on, on hype and 
uh, kind of law of averages in some cases, given the speculation at the time. But I think the ICO term itself is interesting, especially as that took hold, because it analogizes with an IPO, a regulated process, but using coins. And there was, in some cases, a perspective that the law didn't apply to this space, which is obviously very foolish. But in some corners of the internet, that was certainly a, a view that was not particularly well-founded, but certainly gained traction. And when you look at the white papers themselves, they had varying degrees of being thought through, sophistication, consideration of legal and regulatory issues, although that really started to develop very quickly, perhaps more so than it did at the beginning of this period. And the whole space was just crazy. Whether you look at it from a legal advisory point of view, from a regulatory point of view, an investor point of view, even a technological point of view, some of these projects were very clearly uh, not well thought through, but were launching in this hype of that space. And others were taking a more well thought through long-term approach. They considered the economics, they considered the legal and regulatory aspect, their fundraising budgets included a sufficient legal budget to get the right advice. And the ones that seemed to be more carefully thought through and had a more traditional business thinking applied to them were the ones that merited more attention. And also, interestingly, I've spent a lot of time in the online community in this space and the, the community approach, given a lot of these were retail investors at first, definitely seemed to evolve over time, moving from hype. And then as some of these projects started to go wrong or became outright scams in some cases, there was a lot more caution and the degree of due diligence moved from very little to almost uh, overly aggressive, which is you know, the pendulum swinging the other way. I think it also shows how rapidly the thinking developed in this space. It was very interesting to watch from that perspective, as well as the way in which people in different jurisdictions applied the Howey test, even if the Howey test didn't apply in their jurisdiction, to determine whether or not their fundraised token was a, a security. And some of the more interesting justifications as to something that was clearly a security, but was maybe justified as being a, as a utility on contrived grounds. So took took a few different elements together to approach the, the, this space. And uh, it, it definitely created a lot of interesting legal and regulatory questions, project specific in some cases too. I think what was also interesting that, that none of us really sort of talk about, but was definitely going on because I vividly remember it from a variety of conferences is that your traditional fund conferences and your traditional fund managers were, were looking at this space and really scratching their heads because they, they would often come together. Lewis, as you will remember very, very well, you know, conferences were putting crypto kind of at the end of their agendas, you know, of things maybe we'll talk about and maybe people will hang around, you know, just before the drinks to listen to because um, there are a few people doing it. Then as some of the numbers started coming out in terms of performance, you, you, you would hear ridiculous stories as compared to the more traditional managers. And it was also a relatively hard environment to raise capital. And so you had some traditional fund managers with many years of track record um, with, with a whole variety of reasons why you might want to put money with them, turning around and seeing people doing these ICOs and raising you know, 50 million in the space of 30 minutes and wondering what on earth they were doing wrong. It was an utterly surreal time. And for everything you've said, Mark, you know, it's, I, I, I read so many white papers that, that year and probably understood 5% of what was in them. Um, but it was so important to try and get a flavor for, for what people were doing. And, and Lewis, you know, you, know, you know very well, people, a lot of people didn't have white papers and that was kind of a non-starter you know, before we even got going. But I wish I'd, I'd invested like you that time in sort of understanding the, the coding behind the smart contract because it must have given you such a good insight into, into, into actually whether the white paper hold, held mustard, really. I think it was a, it ended up being a crucial part of due diligence, especially when you looked at you know, 
the potential to mint further tokens or, or that sometimes was in the white paper, sometimes it was in the contract and didn't always line up, but often did. And it was a very, it was a roller coaster, I think is the best way to describe that time. And I'm, uh, you, I'm sure you probably both agree with that. And you had to very quickly keep up, get, get up to speed and then stay up to speed because of just how dizzyingly fast things were moving on all fronts, aided by uh, a lot of media coverage, which um, was very excited. Although I do think, uh, looking back in hindsight, I think the people who put on the conferences in the long run, as we moved into the crypto winter, probably made more money than the people who had invested. That's an absolute truth. And I think there are very, there are loads of war stories in this, in this era of, of that very thing. No, I agree with you completely. Just to wrap up, when, when we got towards that crypto winter, you know, as, as, as you described it, Mark, and, 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 and Lewis, from your perspective, you know, that run into Bitcoin getting sort of in and around 20,000 um, towards, towards sort of December 2017. Did you, did you think this was going to continue? Had this gone on for long enough that, that actually were you carried along with the momentum? And then when it crashed in the way that it did, did you think it would ever recover? So I guess from my perspective, I, I mean, I, I knew that things were a bit crazy uh, then. So everyone was talking about it. And so um, I, I knew that things were going to be a bit overheated. But you, you never know when things are going to go downhill. If I knew that, then, then I wouldn't be a, a humble offshore lawyer. So it, it was, okay, how long is this going to last? And to be honest, with, with the crypto winter, it was the same for me. It, it's how long is this going to last? And and who's going to survive? That was the, the thing for me, because I think the asset class is here to stay. I, I kind of knew that. There were a lot of very smart people, you know, certainly people who were way smarter than me, who, who were firmly of the view that, that this is an asset class that, that just won't die. So I didn't think it was going to go. I just wondered, I wondered who would be left when, when, when we emerged. And, and you know, thankfully, you know, some of the, the clients we, we had from the early days were, were well equipped to, to deal with that and take advantage of it. And, and we've been fortunate to grow with them um, as a result. Uh, I think that, that that's testament to the approach that Harneys took. Very careful consideration of the clients, not getting caught up with the, with the hype and wanting to be in the space for the sake of being in the space and making sure that you took on clients who had really thought this through, had planned it, had a sustainable business model. And as you say, were the ones who, who went through the winter were able to hibernate in a way whilst actually working on the, the project as the technology developed. And I looked at this from a lawyer's point of view as, well, this has to happen. We need a shakeout because it's just getting ridiculous. And actually the space as a whole was starting to be negatively affected in terms of reputation and optics by some of the more high profile um, things that were occurring at the time. From an investor point of view, I spent a huge amount of time reading through white papers uh, doing a huge post on, on a lot of questions, which were then very quickly and thoughtfully answered. And so that I was expecting this to happen. I think it was necessary. And it's like, if you look through history, these sorts of cycles, especially with a new technology or a new concept, the hype and the speculation brings capital in, which fuels its development and attracts the right people, the, smart, the very smart people who really have vision and is necessary, as is the shakeout. And so I think it was a necessary stage in the evolution of this space. And what we're seeing now with this recovery is a lot more maturity and people have got the right uh, advisors on board at the very beginning rather than you know, getting to ICO stage and then perhaps thinking that hiring a, a lawyer might be a good idea. And the ones that had properly thought this through that actually had significant potential had done their market research. I bought these things ex expecting to sell them on a three to five year timeline. So I wasn't remotely bothered about the crypto crash because I was confident in the choices that I've made. 
but from a lawyer's point of view it was it was necessary to ensure that people started to take a step back take a breath reassess the space and take the time when perhaps the hype and attention had died down a bit to really look at things with a, a fresh head in the cold light of day so i, I knew it was going to come back uh, i'm glad it, it happened in the way it did uh, but i think there was dramatic uh, terminology around this period in time and i think that perhaps uh, skewed the perception of some people that it was dead and gone but actually it was a necessary uh, reduction in hype and interest while the market as a whole matured and people could look at things without being carried away by external forces and, and, a, and a bit of hype. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with that. I, what you were saying, Mark, just took me back to one of the, the Coin Arts Fund Symposium events that we organized. I think it was in 2019 where, you know, a, a leading uh, VC fund manager uh, was, was our keynote speaker and, and he was talking about seeing this kind of cycle before you know, the, the, the technology boom of the 90s and, and the sudden drop there yeah, in, in 2000 or so. And uh, he, he kind of talked about that a little bit. And then at the end of uh, his talk, when he was opening the floor up to questions, uh, someone said, well, you know, you, you were talking about the, the technology boom of the 90s. Where do you think we're at now? And, and his, his firm response was, we're at 2001. You know, <laughs> there was a lot of investment, a lot of capital flowed in. Some of it went down the drain, but there are things that are going to stick. And, and just as your, your Facebooks and, and Googles came out in kind of mid to late 2000s, he, he's firmly anticipating something similar in terms of the, the people that were able to weather that winter. So it was an interesting analogy. And on that note, um, I think we will wrap up this, uh, this podcast. Thank you both ever so much for your, for your fascinating insights and very much looking forward to, uh, to the next episode.